2: Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, Visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Nicole Jude. Nicole, thanks so much for joining me.
3: Thanks for inviting me to be with you.
1: Absolutely. So Nicole has 20 years experience in the nonprofit sector, designing programs and overseeing their implementation. She was hired at the Ideal Industries Foundation in 2021 to align philanthropic activity with corporate strategy and to increase impact. And I saw a quote that you had given at Family Business Magazine, which is why I reached out to you. I thought it was interesting, your take on philanthropy. But before we get to the current role, I'd love to get kind of a dual track, the background on yourself. And your areas of focus, but then also I'd love to hear the broader family story about the business and and how it was started and and what it looks like today.
3: So the business start there, that was started more than a hundred years ago by my great grandfather. And it started as a manufacturer of some simple electrical components and then grew into more of a larger manufacturing firm. And then, you know, recently with Move to so much renewable energy and green energy. There's areas of the company that have really grown because there is such a need with our whole culture and society moving away from combustion engines and fossil fuels and towards rechargeable batteries and electric vehicles. So the company now, I mean, is as much as it's still an electrical company. I do feel like it is it within that. Renewable energy sector, too, which is exciting. I personally had a career until very recently in the last year in the nonprofit sector. So I worked developing programs and implementing them. I then moved into development and fundraising and had almost every possible job you could have in that field from major gifts, foundation relations. We did a lot of capital campaigns. So kind of come to philanthropy from looking through the other end of the telescope, so to speak, of having been spent many years as a grant seeker, now to be in the position of bestowing funds, I think it has given me an interesting perspective on how to do it in a way that's impactful and efficient.
1: Yeah, that was interesting. I wanted to bring that up. You kind of As we would say in the Wall Street parlance, you've been on the buy side and the sell side in this this world. Did you ever work within the family business before the foundation?
3: Never. And I don't think there's anyone that's more shocked than I am that I'm doing it right now. I truly thought I did not have any interest. I didn't feel like I really had any skills that dovetailed with what was needed to in this corporate environment. I'll be honest, this is the first time that I've ever worked for a for-profit organization. Even though the foundation of course is a nonprofit, but being in a more corporate setting instead of a nonprofit setting, like that's new to me and I'm, you know, midway through my career, not more.
1: So how did that come about? Did the family reach out to, did the company reach out to you? Did the family reach out to you? I assume there's non-family members who were in executive positions within the company, yes. correct?
3: My sister's the chair of the board, but everyone else is non-family. And she did reach out to me and asked if I would help out. And I said I would. And I imagined that it would just be something I'd do a couple hours a week just to help out, be nice, fix the, up the bylaws, and just do some housekeeping. And then When I spent some time kind of kicking the tires on this, I realized this is such an underutilized asset for the company. It had been around since 1985, but had operated really kind of in the shadows and not for any reason about a lack of transparency or anything like that, but just not almost realizing what a value this could be to the company. So as I started looking into it more, I got more and more excited about what this could do. You know, I think what's interesting about a corporate foundation is that first, of course, you're thinking about like, okay, what can we do to solve a problem, right? Through financial resources. But for a corporate foundation, and I think this is probably true for family foundations too, to some degree, but it's like, okay, but how can this also help advance the business? How can this help enhance the identity of this company? How can it create some opportunities to engage employees that weren't there before? How does it just give the company a little bit more of a standalone identity in that larger, you know, there's so much competition right now for talent everywhere. So is this a way that you kind of differentiate this company from another similar company in that real kind of race to hire great people by positioning the company through the foundation as a place that gives back where you can make a difference and it gives a sense of the values of the company and the family.
1: And that's really, you know, before we went live, we talked about this a little bit, how this next generation of leadership, you know, folks that are, I'm 40, right? So my wife and her cohort, It really is kind of doing good and doing well. Corporate responsibility is just, frankly, table stakes at this point, I think, for Mm -hmm. this next generation of employees. I'm curious, the way you you talk about leveraging the foundation to engage with the company, has the foundation typically been a way for family members to engage with the company as well?
3: No, that has not ever happened. And I think in part because the foundation was operating so quietly that none of us, including myself, really had a sense of how it could be deployed in a much more useful way. So at this point, I'm the only family member who is involved in the foundation. And it's really much more focused right now on engaging employees rather than the family, because it's not a family foundation. I mean, that is one thing to keep in mind. This is a corporate foundation that the corporation Soul member, not to get boring, but so we, we do really keep it for that reason. I think it's important to keep it separate and not muddy. Like, what is the family role and what is the company's role?
1: But I do want to get into that because I think for our listeners, the way I look at it is it's bifurcated, right? Typically, you have an operating company, and that operating company has a foundation, or you've had a liquidity event and you're a purely financial family office, then you have a family foundation. But could you maybe go a little bit deeper? into what those differences are structurally, legally, culturally, et cetera?
3: Yes, I'll answer that. You tell me if this is what you think that what you were trying to get at with that question. I mean, in our family, the company is the asset and it has not been liquidized, liquidated. It's a family owned business. So there's not a lot of cash in our family beyond what's in the company. So we don't really have a need for a family office and we don't really have, I think that structure of a family foundation wouldn't be attractive to us. For the company itself, this actually is a really useful vehicle. We don't have a huge endowment. We have a small-ish endowment, but our investments that we can make in our operating budget really come directly as a percentage of Nibita of the company every year. And we're in the process right now, looking at you know, if there's a min and a max for that. But when I was hired, The company had been giving away a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And I think that the goal is to really ramp that up for all the reasons that we've talked about and that one could think of. So if that's going to exponentially increase, we really needed to think about how to build the capacity to be able to give much more away and do it in an effective, responsible and efficient way.
1: Yeah, that was one of the questions I had was you said it was started in the 80s up till you took over the leadership position was there a mandate was there a mission statement what did it look like structurally was there I assume there was a board
3: There was and I think that I want to be careful not to throw any shade on how it had been run. Philanthropy has made so many strides in the last 10 years so everything was done completely legally everything Above board, of course, but it was, I think, and I think everyone would agree, it operated a little bit more in a reactionary way. So I'm um, having a bullathon and I would approach the foundation, and, hey, will you give me $5,000 for this bullathon, but maybe not a lot of criteria around what the giving priorities were. So it tended to make decisions in a reactionary way instead of in a proactive way because the mission was not very focused. So a lot of the work that I've done in the last year is to revise the mission statement with the rest of the foundation board and put in a lot of parameters and guidelines that help be able to make decisions about what to give to in a way that you're not just reacting to the requests that you get and you don't have any criteria for evaluating those requests.
1: Yeah, it's a huge opportunity. I certainly don't mean to you know, pass dispersions on how they operate in the 80s, but my wife is very involved with our family foundation. She has been in the nonprofit education space for a long time. And the, the, to your point, the world's changed quite a bit in the last 10, 20 years, right? The the days of a bake sale or you know a food drive, it's just you can be much more offensive and forward thinking now. And so if there's a family listening to this, that is thinking about restructuring their foundation, shaking things up, bringing in new leadership with this demographic shift that's occurring, how did you start? Did you take everything to to brass tacks and then rebuild it? Did you bring in a consultant? What did that process look like?
3: No, I mean, in some ways I was the consultant and then kind of became more embedded in the foundation. So I would say that what we did, which I think is a good idea for anyone who has a foundation or is, let's just say like someone who already has some structure in place. And that is just to look at everything. Read the bylaws. You know, in our case, the bylaws hadn't been revisited since the 80s. So what do they say? Like, what is it that the original intent was of this foundation? And then how is it that we can update it to make it a greater asset than it is, or it had been up until that point. So a lot of governance, a lot of, you know, there, we didn't have good policies in place. We didn't have insurance for foundation member board members. So there was a fair amount of just like housekeeping that had to be done. Then we went into the mission and we really focused the mission. So previously there had been some exercises done around, Needing to create a better mission because the one that had been original was extremely vague. So I think that there, this previous exercise had been okay, let's give internationally. Great. Let's give to the environment, to food security, to diversity efforts, and to affordable housing. But that is a really broad priority category in terms of. If you have a million dollars, how can you really make an impact giving internationally to those massive categories of philanthropy? Even if you had a billion dollars, I think it would be really difficult. So over the course of the first part of this year, we looked at what would be a mission that would be a little bit better to be able to feel like we're making some impact. And where we landed is we got there from talking to a lot of people in the company trying to understand what the big barriers were in this industry that could be solved through financial resources because not everything that that's not the answer to every problem and where we came to was this idea that the electrical industry it's a really vibrant industry but the average age of an electrician is 57 and i think that it's something like 94% white males. At the same time, the construction industry in general is one that for someone without a college degree is probably the fastest and most effective way to build wealth and to enter the middle class and create generation old wealth. So we kind of thought that that really sit very well with trying to address a problem and that was going to be something that was kind of close to the company's heart and something that Ideal would take a real business interest in because this industry needs to be vibrant for the next 20 years for the company to be vibrant. And so that's kind of how we arrived at what we were doing. And then from there, everything really fell into play so quickly in terms of the kind of work that made sense for us to do.
1: And what about engaging the family? in this conversation and process what did that look like
3: it was more letting the family know how this was working so we had some regular webinars we had some updates we have an annual meeting and it was speaking to people about what it was that we were doing and getting people engaged also again since it is a corporate foundation, making sure that everyone understood that this was really being done at the invitation and the behest of the company. But yeah, it was a, so that has been really actually rewarding for me to be able to talk to the family about what it is that we're doing and why.
1: So, what does it look like today in terms of structure, mission statement, investment protocol? I'm assuming it's always a work in progress, but I'm sure you've made some pretty drastic strides over the last year, I think, or so that you've been doing
3: this. Yeah. So we revised the mission statement to just really focus on, okay, this foundation, the Ideal Industries Foundation exists to address issues and problems that concern the company, its customers, or their communities. So, I think that that really, if it doesn't relate in some way to the industry or to the people who are part of the communities that Ideal works in, it's not really something that we would be involved in. And that has given us enough parameter to be able to start looking for interesting partnerships to invest in.
1: And if you were in quarterbacking this, I I think we all have a sense of ideally what we want to see accomplished and, and do, but... Since you've been in the space for so long on both sides of the table, what are some mistakes you see occurring consistently across the foundation space that that people should be aware of if they're spinning up a new foundation or or shaking up an existing one to kind of save them that time and and
3: heartburn? I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you. Because from my perspective, the thing that foundations can do outside of giving money away. That is the most valuable and helpful to the organizations that they're trying to support is to think about what that process is like to apply or to send a proposal in to a foundation. So, one of the things that we overhauled a lot was the whole application process. We would ask previously for a lot of documentation. We would ask for lengthy descriptions of what the funds were going to be used for. I think we asked for reporting, a lot of budgets, and yet we worked with the same organizations that we knew were really respected and we had worked with for a long time and had a lot of faith. So we really pivoted to more of a trust-based philanthropy model where, first of all, we are giving unrestricted operating income, which in the world of nonprofits is just the most valuable kind of dollars that you can get. And they are very rarely received by foundations. Almost every foundation gives restricted funding, which means it can only be used typically just for a program. And the easiest kind of money to get is for a new program. Those are fun to grants. They're fun to support. It makes the funder feel like you're really making this difference. Whereas unrestricted money, which could be used honestly to like repave a driveway or put a new roof on, it doesn't feel that exciting for the funder. But in terms of what's actually needed the most, the problem with giving a lot of program grants is that once that funding stops, then you've built your capacity and you can't sustain it. So this happens over and over where nonprofits become spread thinner and thinner because the only funding that they can get is for new programs, much harder to get funding for existing initiatives. So we have just like really moved away from that. We work entirely, not entirely, but I would say right now, the majority of the gifts and grants that we give are unrestricted. And we really try to have a relationship with these places too, because when nonprofits feel that they are competing for funding, it's just really hard to be very honest. Not that you're lying, but you just want to try to spin something so that it's likely that you're going to be funded. And I think that creates a learning gap for everybody because no one's being honest with each other about where the real, like, struggles are, like where the pinch points are. Maybe as a funder, you realize that you could do even more if you understood what some of the real issues that these organizations are grappling with. But people aren't going to tell you that if they feel like if they admit anything, that it will make it less likely that they'll be funded.
0: Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you're referring to, obviously, much like Mackenzie Scott has done with kind of unrestricted giving. My wife is the president of uh, a foundation. I received a gift from her and it was incredible because it allowed them to start up an endowment type of investment vehicle, which, you know, will provide for incredible things moving forward. But otherwise they were never able to get that kind of bucket of capital in the door. And it's hard because as a family foundation, we're very specific and we do, you know, we do require a lot of restrictions and we require all these reporting and metrics and everything. And I can see both perspectives on it, but at at some level, you do have to trust the nonprofit organization to, to allocate capital according to what they think the greatest need is. So,
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that we're working with a startup organization right now. And there we did ask a lot more, like, let's see the plan. Let's work on the plan together let's workshop this and get it to a place that we all feel great about and ways that I felt like the foundation could help actually strengthen their proposal so that then they could use what they learned working with us to help them secure funding down the road. But I mean, congratulations to your wife's organization, because that, that is amazing. I mean, that's really transformative. And I think that the way that Mackenzie Scott has undertaken her philanthropy is a really easy, really straightforward example of this trust-based giving, which is just, here's your money, you know?
1: Yeah. It's incredibly powerful and so counter to what many of the donor community believes. So I think it is changing the narrative a little bit. Yeah.
3: And I think that there's something about, I think about this a lot too, that just like the ego of a funder and how all of us want to feel that we personally are making this huge difference when, you know, I think progress can often really be only measured in the most incremental ways. And it is a struggle to make change, it really is. And as much as we all are attracted to this idea of being the agents of transformation, I think sometimes checking that and just thinking, like, oh, hey, what are we gonna do to just make this a little bit easier of a barrier to overcome for this population? It's maybe a something good to keep in mind as funders.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it can be a very powerful tool. And then what about the flip side though? I know on our foundation side, once you do the work, right? You increase your mission statement, you increase your visibility. Then you have a challenge of top of the funnel becomes really big, right? You have a lot of people asking for money. How do you manage that process and, and system?
3: Well, so with our foundation, I am the only real employee. So it's just me. We have board, have some consultants that work on projects. So I really have to think about with the bandwidth of one person, what we can do. So we actually stopped accepting applications. We chose seven organizations that are located within the geographical area of the company's headquarters and said, we are not promising because nothing in life is a sure thing, but the idea is that let's just keep working together in an ongoing way. We're going to be as transparent with you as possible, send you a letter at the beginning of every year saying, this is what you can expect to get from the foundation. And let's just make this as frictionless as possible for everyone. And then the work that we're doing in the electrical industry around workforce development, diversifying the trades, that's where I'm putting the majority of my time. And that really is building a network of potential implementation partners for the foundation's work. Because of course, I can't implement anything as a single person. So I need to find those organizations that have demonstrated success in this space of diversifying the trades. And then with them, figure out ways that we can work together where the foundation can bring some resources and they can deploy them in a way that's going to fulfill our mission.
1: What did that look like on your end with the process of selecting these seven organizations?
3: I really, I'm not geographically located in the area that the company, I live in Philadelphia and the company is Illinois. So I really took the advice of the board members who are local there And we looked at the organizations that we had given to over time. We also kind of gave ourselves a little bit of a parameter around, okay, let's think about organizations that are going to make this community a better place to live and work with the idea around attracting talent. So any program that is going to increase the economic development of that county or enhance the quality of life in some way, we were focused on that. We did focus a lot on social services as well. And so then the organizations that kind of rose to the top, we just made a commitment to them. And we have one meeting with each of them every year, check in, just try to get as much honest feedback about just the nonprofit landscape and the issues that they're encountering, because then that that helps us get better at what we're doing too.
1: Well, that's where I was going to go next. I mean, you're obviously deeply involved with the nonprofit sector. What are the challenges today? What are the, the themes that you're seeing in those boardrooms?
3: Well, I think that one thing, and, and Mackenzie Scott is a good example of this, that as our culture gets that division between those who have a lot of wealth and everyone else, as that's widening, which we know that it is, there is less local philanthropy, and there's more national philanthropy. So there are not very many Mackenzie Scotts, but if you use her as an example, where she's not giving just to Seattle organizations, she's giving to organizations literally all over the country. What makes, I mean, that's wonderful. It's fantastic that she's doing that. But what makes it difficult is that there really is no active role that nonprofits can take in that kind of process. So it's very expensive to try to reach these donors that have like a a huge blanket in terms of what they're looking at. It's much easier to and less expensive to target the donors that are are in your immediate geographic area. But there are going to be fewer and fewer of those donors and more and more of these national donors, whether they're private individuals or foundations. And I would say the Ideal Foundation, we are one of those organizations. So it's very difficult for a nonprofit, even one that we would be really interested in working with, to find us. Because what would you use as your search criteria? What would you use as your filter? And- philanthropy up until very recently, the filter would always be geographic area. And now that's really not as pertinent as it used to be. So it really upends the whole system the way that it's built. Like, How do the funders and the fundees, how do we find each other?
1: Classic marketplace challenge with no easy answers. What do you see on the horizon for the foundation? Do you have a big hairy goal? Do you have just incremental steps that you'd like to see take place?
3: Well, The previous head of the Rockefeller Foundation told me something that was very uh, reassuring. And he said, the first two years that you're doing this kind of work, you really don't know what you're doing. You just need to, you just need to learn as you go, you know, do the best you possibly can, but don't get paralyzed because maybe you're not doing things perfectly. Be humble enough to realize that you'll get better at this. So I feel excited about some of the work that we're doing and the direction that we're kind of narrowing in on. And I think that for us, in terms of that funnel that you mentioned, that engagement funnel, like working with people who have already identified an interest in the construction trades and then helping find solutions to get more non-traditional participants into these training programs is really, I think, where we're focusing. And then we're also focusing on making doing some good employee engagement efforts. So we are going to, with the company, launch a workplace giving program in the spring. So every employee of IDEAL can get their charitable donations matched by the foundation. I think there are a lot of opportunities to bring value directly to IDEAL employees that we're excited about building out as well.
1: Well, that's a lot. <laughs> and then what about, you know, I, I think you've touched on this, but I want to make sure that we got everything kind of, you, you mentioned the Rockefeller foundation. They famously have uh, withdrawn investments in the coal and oil sector. You see more and more people have that, as you referenced before we started this alignment of capital. And I, I know community engagement being hyper-local with your giving That all seems to check the box, but are you thinking about it on a deeper level as well from the foundation perspective?
3: Yes. We just went through about a six-month exercise with the investment advisors that the foundation uses. And these are the same investment advisors that manage the company's pension. So I think even though we would not on our own be a very important client because the company is. So I just want to say that I think we got, we, they were willing to spend a lot of time with us because we were part of being a larger client. And we really wanted to look at how our investments were stacking up vis-a-vis the mission of the foundation. So it's not that hard to imagine that your investments could actually be undoing all the good that you're trying to accomplish with your philanthropic activities. And so we just wanted to make sure that that was not the case. So we looked at a lot of the different screening tools that are available right now, which I'm sure you've probably talked about on this podcast before. I was like ESG investing. And what we came to is this idea that one of the barriers that we know in terms of getting more women and people of color into the construction trades is that there aren't enough businesses that are owned by women and people of color. And we also know that one of the real barriers to starting a business or growing a business is access to capital and that it is harder for women and people of color to get financing and get loans to be able to start or build their business in the construction industry. So working off the premise that if there is an investment manager that is diverse owned or has a lot of diversity on their board or in their upper management, they are going to be more likely to not discount or make it more difficult for people to borrow money based on their gender or on their cultural or racial background. We have been rebalancing our portfolio to we've stopped working with some investment advisors that had really low rates, percentages of diversity at the board level, like a company that had no women or people of color on their board, we swapped them for an investment advisor or investment manager that is majority diverse at a board and management level. So there we feel like we're not really making any concessions in terms of the investment performance but we're lining it up better to hopefully help accomplish what we want to do with diversifying the construction trades.
1: It's impressive work and kudos to you. It's not easy. Nicole, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and being open and talking about everything that you're doing. It sounds great. It's Um, been
3: really a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. So if people are interested in learning more about the foundation itself, or maybe engaging with you to hear kind of your Process best practices about the foundation work. What's the best way for them to get in touch?
3: I'd be happy to talk to anybody about this. I probably have a lot to learn from what other people are doing as well. Uh, If you can go to the Ideal Industries Foundation website, and there is a contact email there, and that's probably the easiest way to get in touch.
1: Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. Please do leave a rating and comment. Let us know what the best part of the conversation with Nicole has been. Nicole, the question that I asked folks to come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life?
3: I do. I do a lot of walking and I do a lot of gardening.
1: Yeah, I was going to, I forgot to, I had a note down. I went and looked up your background. Horticulture has been yeah. your main focus. yeah. So uh, that makes sense that you would want to be out. I assume you have a garden at home.
3: I do. Yeah. I have great. a couple. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: my My wife is, got into chickens and gardening with covid and it is very yeah. it's very soothing it um, is good excuse to be outside exactly well nicole thank you so much for coming on and joining and, and being open with us and i wish you the best luck with the foundation moving forward
3: thank you so much it's been nice talking to you thank you for joining us for today's episode of the capital
0: club If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.